I think people are, are building the consciousness that they haven't had before. Um, I think it's coming Chicago. in pretty strongly now. So imagine one time your entire site was a large hole. Look around. Notice what you saw before, what you can't see any longer, or what you can now see that you weren't able to. You are listening to WLPN LP Chicago Lumpin Radio. Our theme song is Hit You With That Pavlovian Sensation. We are live from the urban farm capital of America, just blocks from where a fictional toddler was eaten by a rat in the Union stockyards of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. We are live in Bridgeport. And you must know it's time for Eco Chicago. Eco Chicago is the only radio show taking a look at green in Sweet Home Chicago. That is, except for the other radio show we just found out about that also claims to be the only green radio show in Chicago, which is why both of our radio shows have launched a fictional lawsuit against each other. That's right, a fictional lawsuit. More about that on next week's show. Ego Chicago is the only radio show taking a look at Green Sweet Home Chicago. What's green? It means the earth, agriculture, culture, energy, food, and of course that other little green thing that makes the earth go round. You guessed it, money. We'll be looking at the capitalist system as always. Writer and producer Leah Menzer here co-founder of Lumpin' Radio. Your usual host, Haley, is out of town. So I will be your host. And what is the word host? A word that's not usually attached to my name that keeps me from being a host. I am power-hungry, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. This morning, imagine a white man with an oil field. It's kind of like that. They say radio is the medium where it's easiest to tell if someone is telling the truth or not. And I know you can hear it in my voice. I want you to listen to me with rapt attention for the words from my mouth to admit from our radio tower, from your government listening devices or device. I want those words, my words, to seep into your ears and your mind like so much spring syrup. I want you to listen to me talk while clutching a picture of me to your chest, not looking at the photograph, just holding it closely. I want you to listen to this show while sipping a lemonade from my personal product line of drinks. I want you to think about my voice. Think about me when you go to sleep or when you wake up in the morning. I want love. I want admiration. I want adulation. I want you to want me, listeners. I want this because I crave your energy like a black hole craves energy so I can have it as mine and reform it into a new universe on the other side. Listeners, we have uh, Bill McKibben on the show with you today, and we, in fact, make him sigh on the show. Well... 
That's what the sigh sounds like. He's going to tell you a lot after that, which is going to go a little bit after the half hour mark. We're going to have some live audio from inside the hidden wilds of Chicago and some audio from the Chicago River Summit. Did you know you can swim in the Chicago River? Some people are recommending it. Now to Bill McKibben. If you don't know Bill McKibben's work, that's because we're all under a grave spell where no truth can penetrate our minds. Look around. Can you deny that it's true? Bill McKibben has written books of how climate change, among other things, he talks to us from his front porch in Vermont. Hello. This is Haley Fager with Eco Chicago. Good to be in touch. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so great to have you. Good to be with you. How are you doing? Uh, where are you right now? I'm at home for once in Vermont, which is nice. Uh, what's the weather like over in Vermont right now? Well, it's actually been warm as heck, and we don't have the snow we should and things. But what can you do? So what are you working on right now? What is 350.org focused on? There's a huge climate march coming up on April 29th in D.C. that we're all in the middle of organizing around, and we've got big divestment campaigns going on all over the world. And of course, you know, a great deal of what we're doing is trying to play defense against Mr. Trump. Speaking of Mr. Trump and playing defense, why are we seeing the oil and gas industry getting so much political power right now? Is this... Well, they've always had a great deal of political power. Mm. They are, after all, the richest industry on earth. And Perhaps it won't be considered too cynical of me to say that having a lot of money sometimes gets you more political power than you actually deserve. Um, But they've been, you know, they're collecting now the spoils of their political work over the last generation. Um, You know, the Koch brothers have been the biggest political players in in our sphere for a couple of decades now. Um, they, their guy, as Scott Pruitt from Oklahoma say, um, this is their investment paying off the end to a kind of environmental regulatory framework that's been painfully built up over 40 years and is now disappearing in the course of a few months. Uh, this is something that the fossil fuel industry has been fighting for for a very long time. We even saw recently that a White House press release was written in part by Exxon's PR team. <laughs> they just stole a, a paragraph straight off the, off the Exxon press release and stuck it in the White House draft, yes. They're closely bonded, I'd say. They're joined at the, joined at the head. Are there other countries so obviously in bed with oil? Is there yep. a precedent for this? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, Vladimir Putin being, you know, a perfect example... Um, he basically runs the oil industry, and that's basically the only going industry in his country. Uh, it's a corrupt fiefdom. Uh, the Saudi royal family would be another uh, obvious and clear example. Oil wealth tends to concentrate. Um, that's one of the that's one of the real problems with it. It ends up in very few hands, like the Koch brothers or like Vladimir Putin and allows them to dominate our political lives. And one of the things that's promising about the sun and the wind is that those sources of energy 
are, are though diffuse, omnipresent. And there's unlikely to be a kind of Vladimir Putin equivalent of the sun or a Saudi royal family of the wind. <laughs> what is next in the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline? Well, that's a very tough question. People are in court doing all that they can. Um, and there'll be big demonstrations in Washington next weekend. Uh, indigenous groups are descending on D.C. Uh, to demand action. I'm afraid this is an extraordinarily tough fight because it combines Donald Trump's um, love for the fossil fuel industry with his racism. And I'm not at all clear that they're going to pay the attention that they should to uh, indigenous communities. But I do know that the fight uh, will continue along past Dakota Access. The remarkable unity that asserted itself in that camp at Standing Rock last fall, I think, has really altered the way that people perceive um, this the, the kind of Native American power, and, and I think that that will continue for a long time. You know, time is measured in larger increments there, hundreds of years at a time, and uh, some things shifted last fall that I think will last for a long time. Can you talk more about that? What do you see as the most effective way to organize against these issues? Well, I mean, there are many ways to organize and many levers to lean on. Um, if you're building pipelines, you need a set of official and government approvals. So that's one way in. And under Obama, we were able to do some of that work. That's less likely now, um, though on a state level, people are continuing to fight hard. These projects require immense amounts of financing uh, to make them happen. And so one of the places where the Dakota Access activists have been particularly useful is in trying to get at the financing um, um, at the banks and other lenders that are making these things possible, putting some heat on them. Um, so, and then there's, you know, actual on-the-ground um, protest. Now, I don't think that we're likely to be able to physically block pipelines, but I think in the symbolic attempt to do so, um, the, the overreaction of the authorities often helps people understand uh, what's at stake, and that was certainly the case at Standing Rock, which became a huge global issue the day that they called in German shepherds to go after peaceful protesters. A lot of times we hear people talk about these issues, about pipelines, about climate change in a way that is sort of reactive to the environment or, you know, reactive to a warm day um, that isn't so deep. A lot of the way that people talk about climate change. Can you tell us more about the psychology of understanding these issues well, I don't know whether I really can. Um, the psychology of it does sometimes seem to vary with the temperature outside. Mm -hmm. And I think in part that's because we'd all like to forget uh, from day to day what we uneasily sense is going on around us. I mean, we're in the midst of the greatest changes that the planet's ever seen. And those are 
very, very scary to deal with. So to a very large degree, we try not to deal with them. <laughs> and and we resent a little bit those who force us to and things. But um, um, Mother Nature makes that more and more difficult to avoid. Uh, you know, 85 or 90 percent of U.S. counties have had a federally declared disaster in the last two years. I think that's one of the reasons now that 70 percent of Americans understand that climate change is a serious problem and it's caused by human beings. Seventy percent's a lot in this country to get to agree on much of anything. I'm sure you co- you come into contact with a lot of people who don't agree with you and who don't fall into that group. Say you met me on a desert, on a deserted island, and I could care less about climate change or any of this stuff. What do you say to convince me to act on climate change? Well, I think on on the desert island, the case might be particularly acute, um, given that we now know that sea level is rising and and rising rapidly. Uh, depending on how many years you plan to stay on the desert island, um, you're going to be up to your neck uh, uh, before it's all over. That's why lots of people are having to leave their homes on low-lying island nations all over the world. So I think that the the thing that causes people to be concerned is different from place to place. Uh, I was just up in the Arctic where it was you know, raining, something unheard of, up uh, above the Arctic Circle in Norway. And people were freaking out because many of the things they're used to doing, grazing big herds of reindeer, uh, for instance, become very, very difficult when it rains and then ices up. Um, you know, in Australia, the fight was made very poignant and powerful in the last year by the loss of huge sections of the Great Barrier Reef, um, on and on. Okay, so what if we weren't in nature? What if we were just in a mall and you have to convince me? It convince you that climate change is real and something to worry about? Correct, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess one could sit down and do what I've done in the past, which is at, at some length, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I mean, I wrote the first book about all this and subsequent ones, and they were effective in reaching people. Um, you can't convince people who don't, aren't open to caring about such things. But you can find what it is that people worry about, uh, you know, almost anywhere. So, for instance, um, if you're sitting down with someone who's religiously inclined, um, um, that's a little bit of the work I've done over the years is in trying to help in the effort to build a kind of religious environmental movement. And, and there are, within all our traditions, uh, strong reasons to be worried. Uh, for Christians, the idea that one should love one's neighbor mm-hmm. is called deeply into question in a world in which now millions of people die every year from the effects of climate change, for instance. If you're sitting down with a deep conservative who has a strong bent toward a kind of uh, authoritarian worldview, then the fact that the Pentagon is deeply concerned about climate change, and in fact that its leaders have on occasion said that it's the greatest threat that we face in the planet, um, is, is sometimes a really palpable, powerful way to do things. There are also you know, a way to come at it from the other direction. 
The polling data indicates that for all Americans, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, uh, uh, solar power and, and renewable energy in general is one of the most attractive things that there is. It polls at about 80%. There's very few things that garner that kind of support. Sometimes for different reasons. You know, for liberals, it might have to do with climate change, and for conservatives, it might have to do with the appeal of being able to generate your own power, be self-reliant in that sense. So maybe that's a good place to begin. Uh, it's probably important to try and suss out who you're dealing with and and what sort of appeals might work most profoundly. We're seeing right now that the Trump administration is rolling back a lot of small regulations that people aren't necessarily talking about. What should we be focused on when it comes to Trump's rollback on environmental regulation and the EPA that might slip through the cracks? Well, that's a very good question. And, of course, one of the problems is they're doing so much all at once that it becomes very difficult to focus on anything. And I imagine that that's one of the things that they're relying on in their planning. Um, So I think, again, it probably differs from place to place. If I were in Chicago, I'd be playing paying enormous attention to the fact that they cut by 97% the EPA budget for retaining water quality in the Great Lakes. This has been one of the hard-earned and incomplete but real success stories of the last 30 or 40 years, the effort to try and clean up the water in our, you know, in the most important uh, freshwater ecosystem on the planet, one that tens of millions of people depend on. Mm. And they're just saying to hell with that. Um, that would that would piss me off were I uh, a denizen of the Windy City. And if the cuts hold in, in places like Chicago with the Great Lakes, if these cuts hold, what will that look like for our city? Well, uh, go back and find some pictures from you know, 1970 and 1980. Mm. Look at what the Chicago River or the Cuyahoga River or Lake Erie or whatever looked like, and you'll get a sense of the possibilities. Or if you want a contemporary version, uh, take a look at what uh, Beijing or New Delhi looks like. It'll take a while to get uh, uh, back there, but clearly that's the direction we'll be heading in. And it may not take that long to get back there because the environmental problems that we have are greatly exacerbated on a warmer planet. Mm-hmm. That is, it takes less automobile exhaust to produce a lot of smog on a uh, hot day than on a cold one. And how much time and EPA regulation and environmental regulation has gone into making the Great Lakes you know, safe for swimming and... It's been, not contaminated. it's been 40 years of selfless hard work by, uh, by now probably millions of people uh, across bureaucracies, across governments, across NGOs and nonprofits. Um, uh, it's been a, a fantastic, remarkable effort. And why on earth one would uh, slow it down? Um, well, one would do it only if one was beholden to the small set of business interests who are going to be able to make more money if they don't have to follow any regulations. It seems really outrageous that 
there that th- that can happen you know that environmental regulation that's been built over you know the past 40 or 50 years can be turned over just by one administration what do you tell environmentalists or what advice do you have for people who have you know really built this regulation up over the past 50 years what what is your advice to those people well let's fight like hell and uh, you know hope that for uh, a couple of years we can hold off the worst changes and let's hope that in a couple of years we're able to shift the political winds uh, you know in the end politics determines uh, you know almost everything mm. and that's why it's so important is that why we seem to have kind of a reactionary narrative around in the environment it feels like even the people who you know hold very strong environmental values are reacting to what's happening rather than being actors what does a proactive approach look like well uh, that's a good question uh you know i think that it looks like what people have been trying to do these last few years proactively uh, pass legislation to keep fossil fuel in the ground, uh, divest from colleges, universities, churches, their portfolios out of fossil fuel. And those things are and have been working to one degree or another, though probably not fast enough to catch up with physics. And I, I'm not sure we are going to catch up with physics. Look, this is a uniquely difficult problem. I wrote the first book about all this. It was way back in 1989, the first book about global warming for a non-scientific audience. And its cheerful title was The End of Nature. Um, um, We've been working very hard to try and turn the momentum in the right way. That momentum had begun to shift a little bit. The rapid fall in the price of renewable energy had given new life to uh, you know, the, to renewable industries around the world. The question is how much of a dent Trump will put in that momentum. Clearly, he's digging a pothole in the road. The question is, is he digging a kind of chasm, a crevasse that will just swallow up all that momentum? Um, it's our job to try and make sure that doesn't happen. And so that's why we do things like go to Washington and April 29th for big marches, and it's why we fight in, you know, wonderful groups like 350 Chicago, uh, fighting hard for getting the city council to divest from fossil fuel, and uh, on and on and on. Will you talk more about what people should expect at the march? Who else is involved in this? Um... Oh, pretty much everybody's involved in it. It's in the environmental world. Uh, you know, as usual, groups like the Sierra Club are doing a great job of helping bring things together. Um, it's actually going to be a kind of good one-two weekend. The weekend before, the scientists are marching in D.C. and around the country. There'll be teach-ins and things. That's kind of fact weekend moving into action weekend, the uh, 29th, which will be the 100th day or so of the Trump administration and the place where we try to say, look, we need actual action on the most urgent issue the world faces. Your nonsense about hoaxes and things is is got to stop. We will be back with the end of that interview shortly. You are listening to Eco Chicago. You've been listening to Lumpen Radio, the radio station too cool for anyone to listen to. 
except you, listener. You must be a mover, shaker, dreamer, maker, doer, changer, entrepreneur, tech head, beer nerd, radicalist, or just someone looking for the hottest news on what's the hot news. We will be back after a short break. You are listening to WLP. NLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Eco Chicago. We are back and we're going to hear the rest of our interview with Bill McKibben. Let's get to it. This larger fight with the Women's March, with the efforts to stop the immigration ban, all of it's an effort to politically weaken the Trump administration so they can do less damage. That's what we're fighting for at this point. All these groups are coming together and, you know, supporting each other's efforts. Who is who who's not being involved in in this climate movement? Who should we be reaching out to to get groups to come under the big tent to slow climate destruction? Well, the climate movement sort of being led in many ways by what you call frontline groups, by mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous people, by climate justice activists, by the people who have felt the burden hardest. Um, I I think that the hope is to appeal, I mean, you know, the, the, as the couple yeah, you know, of reigns of power in the end in America are held by the kind of middle, by suburban voters, by people who uh, we have to desperately try and appeal to. Uh, we won't get all of them, and clearly the hardcore uh, conservatives will never come around, but they're by no means a majority. Uh, uh, that's the, the middle that has to be won. You've talked a lot about divestment um, in a tool for effective organizing. Can you talk more about that? What is divestment, and who should we divest in? Well, the divestment movement really kind of Naomi Klein and I came up with the broad outlines of it in 2012 after we read a a new report from uh, a small think tank in the UK. And it concluded that the fossil fuel industry had in its reserves about five times as much carbon as we could ever hope to burn. Uh, If we did burn it, we'd go way past even the the high goals that the world has set for itself, a two-degree rise in temperature. And once you knew that the business plan of the fossil fuel industry essentially broke the planet, then, you know, you started to regard this industry in a different way, as a kind of rogue industry, a sort of pirate industry. And it became appropriate, we thought, for people to sell their shares and put pressure on the industry that way. And people have responded. It's become the largest campaign like this in history, I think as of last December, we were up to endowments and portfolios with total assets of about $5 trillion that had divested in whole or in part from fossil fuel. Uh, So it's beginning to make the argument in a serious way and and put real pressure. That needs to continue. You know, we've got a big effort right now to get the Vatican, for instance, to divest. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And also to get important cultural institutions to cut their ties with the fossil fuel industry. There's a campaign that launched this week at the Louvre in Paris to get them to stop taking fossil fuel money, Uh, a a call that got easier, by the way, because the Louvre 
almost flooded in the worst floods that Paris has ever had earlier this year. So, uh, you know, as the chickens come home to roost, this is one of the ways that people are taking action. Not every person lives next to a pipeline or a frack well, but everyone lives next to a big pot of money at their church, their college, their local pension fund, whatever it is that needs to be put into action here. Do you know of anyone specific to the Midwest or Chicago that people should be putting pressure on in this area? 350 Chicago has been mounting a big campaign around the Chicago City Council and the Chicago Pension Funds, and I think that's an important one, especially since the fossil fuel industry has been losing money the last 10 years. Uh, uh, You know, anybody who divested when we first called for it four or five years ago has made out like a bandit because they avoided those big drops in fossil fuel stocks. Also in Chicago, we have a lot of companies that are violating EPA regulation and poisoning people with neurotoxins. And the EPA, it seems like everyone's hands, the city, the state, the EPA, are tied when it comes to enforcing the fines against big businesses. Do you know of any political mechanism to put, put on this type of pressure this is why we have elections, and if we elect strong people who will push hard, then the EPA will be empowered to work, and if we elect Donald Trump, then the EPA will see their budget slashed by 25 or 30 percent, as he's proposed, which means there'll be no one there to do the work of trying to crack down, even if there was any will to do it. What will you miss most as, the cli- as climate change advances? Personally, uh, this is not the most important reason to worry about climate change, but um, I actually, I live out in the woods, and I I love winter. I love the quietness of it, and I love the fact that when there's snow on the ground, you know, friction disappears for a little while. It's always seemed delightful to me, and it makes me sad to think of uh, a future where, you know, we just have mud season for much of the year. Do you have a favorite extinct animal? Uh, I have a a favorite animal that's in great trouble now across the Midwest and New England, and that's the moose, Uh, kind of totem animal for me. But as the temperature is warmed, their uh, prospects are, I mean, their numbers are plummeting because uh, the spread of ticks, which love a warm world, has made their life almost unbearable. The average moose they trap now in Minnesota has maybe 70,000 ticks on it, and they're just sucking them dry. So, uh, you know, for me, that's the animal that I maybe think about when I think about climate change, because I see them here often. Should my producer and I be chaining ourselves to Chase Bank while we're doing this interview with you? Can you talk about times where um, that kind of activism has been effective for your movement? I can, and then I have to get off the phone. <laughs> I have to go do some planning, but I can definitely talk about that. Nonviolent direct action is uh, an important part of the activist toolkit. It's not the only part, and you don't want to overuse it, because like any tool, it can get dull, literally and figuratively, when used too much. But there are moments when that's the only way to underscore the urgency and uh, uh, draw the attention to uh, 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 an overwhelming issue. 
And so Keystone or Zipcota Access are very good examples. We were able to slow those down at least for a while precisely because people were willing to take symbolic civil disobedience kind of action. And, you know, so you do end up in jail, and that's not the best thing in the world, but it's not the end of the world. The end of the world is the end of the world, and that's kind of why we do this work, I guess. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Bill. A real pleasure for me. Thank you all for your good work there. We'll talk to you soon. All right. God bless. Bye. Bye. That was Bill McKibben and host with Haley. You are listening to Lumpen Radio. A few things to pull away from that interview. More than a few things, and it's worth a re-listen. But here's something that really struck my attention. You can't convince people who don't aren't open to caring about such things. You listeners are open to caring, and that's why we demand your undivided attention and adoration because we need you to love us enough and believe in us that we can affect change. You can't convince people that don't want to be convinced, but you're listening. You're looking to be convinced. Of course, one of the problems is they're doing so much all at once that it becomes very difficult to focus on anything, and I imagine that that's one of the things that they're relying on in their Listen up. 97% cuts to the Great Lakes cleanup fund. This is the largest reserve of fresh water in the world, in at least the United States. Either way, we can't let this be ruined. But they don't want us to see, as Bill illustrated in his interview, there is a deep spell cast over everything and I wish I had a word that sounded less whimsical to give you but you can see it you can feel it to lead you out we're going to I sent Haley on assignment to the wilderness right in the middle of Chicago right by downtown that you probably have never heard of and now you won't because it's been raised to the ground so in the interest of time Thank you so much for listening to Eco Chicago. We're going to say our goodbyes now. Thanks to Bill McKibben. Thank you to Janet Kinsman. Thank you to Haley Fager. Thank you to Edmar Logan. All the other Lumpin' DJs who are out here lifting the spell for you. Now to Jana.
all of this. This is total insanity. So here we are right here. Here's that bridge. Okay. And then this is the size of it. Oh my god. So, that's huge. Yeah, it's enormous. So it's like it's like you can't see it on the map, but like that's a fire hydrant right there. Mm-hmm. And that's like a sewer grate. So like sewer has been laid before. And then the project got dropped. It's huge. Yeah, you can totally see the scale on here. So that's Roosevelt is at the top? Like yeah. where the target is. Yeah. That's like, yeah. the other side of it. Yeah. And then the bottom side is 18th Street. Yep, right so here. So it goes all the way from 18th to Roosevelt, and then it's the, what's that street on that side? Clark. That's Clark. And then the river. And then the river. Yeah. Wow. That is huge. <laughs> I know. So when I say a whole new neighborhood, you get it now? You get the scale of it? <laughs> <laughs> oh my I wish I had seen what it looked like before. Oh, man. I wish you had, too. I wish every Chicagoan had. It was so good. It was, like, so lush and verdant and I don't know now it's all gone <laughs> so this is the I we call it like the south entrance or the Pingtown Park entrance to what my friends and I called the Resco lot but people call it Rescoville Resco land Brownlands the land you know just all these every there's a billion colloquial names but anyway so this is the fence that was down that like had a dip in it that you could hop over it was 63 acres of nothing but just invasive plants and weeds and it was like wilderness. And my friends and I really thought about wilderness a lot when we came here because, you know, something like a forest preserve is, is managed and people take care of it and encourage, you know, native species to grow and produce like, you know, a habitat for what was originally most of this area. But this place was never cared for. Nothing was ever, you know, maintained. Um, it just was let to do whatever it wanted. And wildlife, I think, responds to that because it's untouched and nobody's in here like messing with things or mowing or pruning or digging up weeds. It was just like wild. So it was just this big wild lot that was, it has a whole long history. It used to be the Chicago River had a kink in it going east and then they straighten the river out so the original riverbed is underneath here um, and then it was filled at some point and then there was a bunch of rail lines that came through here but now it's just the Rock Island District Metro train I think I think that's on the east side um, and then all the rail lines were taken out hence the piles of railroad ties I think they're called um, and then it just was left alone for a very long time and various developers bought it including Tony Resco um, who has quite the history in Illinois and then it was supposed to be slated for development at some point and then it never got done my friend said that it had even been raised exactly like this once before and then the deal fell through and then it was just let to go wild again wow. so we're all kind of hoping that that's <laughs> what's gonna happen I don't know I was so happy to have found it it's like it's 63 acres like you can't even comprehend how big that is. But it's 63 acres in the middle of the city that's untouched and just getting to be here was like quiet and, you know, relaxed and nothing, like you couldn't hear anything except for the trains and some like traffic, but it was so peaceful. What kind of plants and animals did you see? Oh man, most of the plants are just invasive weeds. Um, 
I'd say the dominant tree was cottonwoods. They grow very fast. And then there was, you know, box elders, buckthorn, um, sumac, which was pretty cool to find sumac here, which is a native. Um, and then all the plants were just like white sweet clover, goldenrod, goldenrod's native, um, you know, mugwort, other artemisia. There was dogbane, which was cool, which is another native plant. Um, I found jewelweed, which is a very strange plant to find in this area. I've only seen it in, you know, quality forest preserves and other, I don't know, <laughs> less industrial looking places. So that was like, you know, we'd always see different types of plants here. And then as far as animal goes, we would find, um, people said there were coyotes that lived here, foxes. Um, we would see birds, like migratory birds, would see this green, big green oasis as they were coming in off the lake, coming, you know, south or coming from the east or from the west, and they would always, like, hang out here. Um, so I would hear and see birds that I didn't really see in a typical neighborhood in Chicago. And, like, you know, countless types of wasps and pollinators and I think, I don't know, do we see a snake here once? Undoubtedly there are snakes here. <laughs> You know, it was like I would just see things here that required larger amounts of space and quiet. You know, you don't see that in like neighborhoods where it's very busy or there's lots of car traffic. One of my friends came here and found this yurt that was in the middle of the lot on like a higher ridge sort of area. There's all these raised elevations and stuff here that's very strange. Um, I think it's relics of like the railroad past. Um, but there's a yurt sitting on top of there and the door of the yurt had this wolf painted on it and so he came back and was like there's this wolf yurt inside of the lot and he told you know you know my friends and told me and we just got really excited about it and so we went back to go check the wolf yurt out and slowly like I think eventually one of the one of my friends met the woman who was living in the wolf yurt so we just got to know her and ask her more about the lot and who was living here and the things that she heard. And she would tell us stories about the coyotes howling whenever the ambulances went by. And just hearing that made me so happy. Um, and she just talked a little bit more about the other residents at the lot and how, you know, they would share um, food or like, you know, canned food resources when there is an abundance. And it seemed like a pretty good community. Um, so that was a really memorable thing. Uh, you know, every time we would have guests come and stay with us who were, like, on bike tour or something like that, we were always, like, they would always be like, oh, show me the cool things in Chicago. And instead of being like, okay, let's go to Lou Malnati's, we would be like, okay, we're going to take you to the Resco lot. <laughs> so we'd ride down here and then just walk around there and, like, watch the sunset and, you know, or we'd bring picnic blankets and, like, beers and stuff and then just sit. There's some concrete pads inside there that we could just sit on and you know, watch the sun go down, and it just was like a perfect cap to any day to come here and just be in solitude and then have a beer or two and then wait for the sun to go down and then ride home. It was like, you know, I don't know, going to the lake or some other, like, like 12th Street Beach is a very similar sort of quiet area in Northerly Island, um, but this was really, like, no one was here. <laughs> yeah, would you ever see other people? No. I don't think so. I think every once in a while, if we saw somebody there, you'd just, like, say hi and then keep walking on your way. But we didn't stop and be like, so why are you here or anything like that. It's just we would see people who lived here and then other people coming through, but never anything, like, nefarious or no one ever looking for trouble. 
How do you feel right now looking at this scene? Just sad, heartbroken, like a piece of my history has died and a piece of like many people who have been coming here, like friends, you know, other friends, acquaintances, and then friends of friends who now have like teenage kids, like they were here when they were younger. And it's just this like multi-generational lot that people have experienced in different ways. And it's the, you know, weirdos in Chicago and adventuresome people in Chicago who came here and this kind of helps, it helped me. And I think it helps a lot of people continue to live in the city because there was a wild space that we could go to and we didn't have to drive out to like Starved Rock or something. It was just like we could go here and get the, the quiet and the, the time to just walk around and look at plants that you might have to drive very far away to get to. But I think everybody's just kind of mourning the loss of this little secret piece of wilderness in the city. So I'm sad, but I know that you know, they didn't dig up the entire seed bank, so something's going to sprout here again next year, whether development starts or not. Um, and if development doesn't ever start, then the cottonwoods are just going to come back. Like everything's just going to—it's going to rewild itself again. <laughs> Everything was verdant. Like the areas where there were puddles, that was where like phragmites and cattails were growing. And then the areas that were higher had like trees and you know other forbs growing on it. Um, and yeah, it was ever-changing. If it rained a lot, like, there was no drainage system or anything, so there'd be bigger puddles, and the bigger puddles would dry up and leave a bunch of mud that you'd then see tracks in of, like, raccoons and possums, and I think we saw coyote tracks one time, and yeah. Oh, look at the barge coming through. Cool! Whoa. But yeah, I mean, you would just look in here and just see a big, green, vacant lot. Are you surprised that there was so much life in this space? No, I wasn't surprised because I, I see plants and birds that are in the city that just need a little bit more space to grow. And so coming here, I saw that they found a resource here. Um, but yes, on an individual level, like coming here and seeing things that I, you know, don't normally encounter... Um, in the urban environment was always a surprise like an indigo bunting which is this little like blue bird the size of a sparrow that's all blue and so seeing that was like incredible and then hearing bird calls that I couldn't identify was also really special so there's like it was like constantly little surprises but in general I knew I knew that this like I knew that this was a resource because like you know you, we learned at wild things like the Calumet region and Lake Calumet down there like there's 14 bald eagles that are hanging out in the Calumet region right now or in the Calumet area in Chicago so like nature it's like nature is demanding something and like because they don't have any money capitalism can't be just like okay we'll build this and then they will come it's just like we keep taking away and they keep demanding more so when they find something that sort of fits the bill I think they use it when they can. What are some of the benefits that a place like Rescoville was bringing to the city? That's a tough question. Um, one of the things that, you know, benefited me directly was, I can't remember exactly which summer it was, but I think it was the summer of 2015. Um, there was, like, something perfect about the winter and about the spring, and, like, all the conditions were right for... Uh, white sweet clover, which is a very invasive agricultural weed, white sweet clover was just covering the lot, covering it. And you got to remember, like, so I'm a beekeeper, and honeybees from their hive, they'll forage up to five miles around where they are for nectar. 
um, and white sweet clover is one of the world's finest nectar sources. Um, so that year, when this was filled with white sweet clover, um, all of the beehives downtown and in the South Loop and probably in this you know, general area, five miles around it, um, were thriving. Like they were producing so much honey because this was a huge resource. And I worry now for all the hives downtown, like this was a big resource for them. And I don't know, you know, to what degree they're going to, I don't know how much this is going to be missed as far as a resource goes for them. But, you know, it benefited humans because that translated into a lot of honey, which translated into sales for me, which meant that I could keep my project going another year. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of humans in Chicago would disagree with like, yeah, it was a great resource for coyotes and coyotes are a really fascinating part of the urban environment. Like they, you know, eat rats and they, I don't know, keep other populations in check. I don't think a lot of people like coyotes, but I think for, for me, I think it was a really cool thing to have here. Um, and it, you know, sometimes we put this value on nature, like, well, nature has to, it has to have a value to humans and animals. It has to have a value to animals, but also humans. Like, you can't, I don't know, sometimes something can just be valued for the animals, and we don't have to take advantage of it. Of course, like, a restored prairie habitat with paths is great. Like, the paths aren't taking anything away from the animals, necessarily. Um, so that's one thing, but... You know, it's okay to just have something for the animals. <laughs> How long would it take for it to be wild again? Like two years, three years. That's it. Cottonwoods grow incredibly fast. And I mean, as far as the plant population, like I said, it's just going to come back next year anyways. Like nothing's going to stop that. No, ma like, no matter the amount of time that it takes for like the trees to grow back or anything, the plants are going to be, be here and it's still going to be, you know, quiet and it's going to be you know, you know, unbothered. So it'll, it'll get wild pretty fast. I love that graffiti that says H2O. Yeah. I was actually talking to one of my friends who I was like, so how did you find out about this? You know, and he's been coming here for like, I don't know, like a decade or something like that. And he was like, oh yeah. You know, I, I read in a graffiti book about a spot that people used to go to. And so I came down to look at it and then I just discovered the rest of it and was like this is incredible but it was like this was one of those spots where you could go to practice and stuff because it was you know abandoned and quiet and it wasn't like standing in a train viaduct or anything it was just you'd hop the fence and get in there man yeah I'm gonna miss this place it was so great it was such a great place to explore and hang out in That was a great show we had today, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is your host, Leah Menzer, and I'll be hosting next week as well. Stay tuned. Remember, there is no justice without environmental justice. <laughs>